welcome back to Holy Conversations. We are so glad that you have joined us for another episode. And I've got my co-host here, Bob Kaler, but he's not actually with me because he's in Colorado Springs. I'm in Oklahoma City. So Bob, how are you doing today? We're doing pretty well. And I wanted to tell people that the podcast continues to get a lot of traction and we're moving forward with some new plans. And one of the things I wanted to tell everyone about was upcoming episodes that we have. We're really privileged to have Dr. Bill Arnold with us today to talk about the image of God. We're going to interview Dr. David Watson from United Seminary on the authority of scripture. We've got Kevin Watson coming up talking about discipleship in the Wesleyan tradition. We've got Jason Vickers talking about Wesley's sermons. So we're really excited about what's happening with the podcast. A lot of great things coming up in future episodes. But one of the things we wanted to do was to make sure that we're addressing questions that people might have. So one of the episodes we're trying to plan for sometime in the near future is what I'm calling the mailbag. So this is an opportunity for us to gather a bunch of questions that people have about WCA or about anything really that's related to Methodism, the new denomination, any of that kind of stuff. So you can email us at podcast at wesleyancovenant.org with your mailbag questions. We'll make sure to include them in the next opportunity we have to do that. We'll probably have Keith Boyette on because Keith is the answer man for all those <laughs> kinds of things. And we will, we will do that. So how are things in Oklahoma City? They're just great. It's hot as it always is in the summer. So we're enjoying time by the pool and getting to uh, be with a few friends as things are starting to open back up just a little bit, but it's been good. How are things in Colorado Springs? We started outdoor worship, which is a great thing to do here. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've set up a space outside. So we, we've been able to do that. It's been really tremendous to be able to see people, even if they're behind their car windshield or or just sitting in a lawn chair. Well, I like to say I can see people's faces. What I really see is half their faces because they're wearing masks. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a different world altogether. Well, we will but, never take for granted seeing people's faces again, will we? No, I, I, I miss seeing a smile because you get yeah. no reaction to your sermon. That was part of the problem <laughs> of, of preaching online only. You don't get people's reaction. I thought, oh, it's going to be so great to have people sitting in front of us and now they're sitting in front of us, but we still can't see their reaction. You can't see what they're doing. <laughs> because they're so far away and you can't see their, you only can only see their eyes. So you're, I see by your eyes that you are perhaps listening or not listening. That's the only thing I can determine at this That's point. That's so true. It is such a strange time, but I'm so glad that we can join each other this way. How thankful we are for Zoom. And I'm excited for you to tell us about our special guest. I'm so excited to introduce Dr. Bill Arnold who is the Paul S. Amos Professor of Old Testament Interpretation at Asbury Theological Seminary. Bill has recently contributed to the section on the book of Genesis in the new Wesley One Volume Commentary, which is a tremendous resource. I really recommend that to you. He's the author of 12 books. He edited the Old Testament portion of the Wesley Study Bible. We actually give a Wesley Study Bible to every new member family who oh, joins our church, good. which is exciting. Uh, Bill was also the co-translator of Genesis for the Common English Bible, wrote a tremendous commentary on Genesis. Was that for the Cambridge series? The Cambridge, the uh, New Cambridge Bible commentary. Yeah, which yeah. is which is really wonderful. And Bill's also an elder in the United Methodist Church in the Kentucky Conference. He's been a general conference delegate and an original member of the WCA Council. Welcome, Bill. 
Thank you so much for those kind words. I'll make sure my wife and mother listen to the podcast so they'll hear all those wonderful things that you said about me. Yes. <laughs> well, very generous. Yes. Well, th- and that's that's the exciting part about this. We we love to be able to have a, a biblical scholar like yourself come on and talk about some some important issues. And that's one of the things that got me thinking about this. And one of the reasons why I contacted you mm-hmm. uh, is that because you're such an expert on Genesis, as much as, as, much as anyone I know, um, and there's a lot we could talk about. I've been using the Wesley One Volume Commentary this spring, the lectionary. We jumped on preaching the lectionary this, this year, and we're going through a lot of things in Genesis in the lectionary right now during ordinary time. Mm-hmm. And as I looked at that and I thought about all the stuff that's going on in the world, and we're struggling with issues around what it means to simply be human. And it seems like as I look at the culture and as I look at the scriptures, that we need some remedial training in understanding what it means to be human beings. And so I'm thinking of the debate surrounding the coronavirus, about saving lives versus saving the economy. Um, which is often a false dichotomy, but there it is. Uh, The cries for racial justice, uh, confusion around issues of gender and sexuality, which of course been a big part of United Methodism. We have debates about the nature of the body. We have debates, debates about the difference between the body and personhood as it's connected to abortion and a whole lot of other issues. And all of that just seems to point to major confusion, confusion about the very nature of humanity. And it seems to me and I hope it seems to you that the book of Genesis has a lot to say about who we are as humans and in particular, what it means to be human beings made in the image of God. So that was a really long setup to this question, which is, (laughs) what does Genesis mean when it claims that human beings are made in God's image? Wow. Well, congratulations on asking the really simple and easy questions. I appreciate, you know, the curveball, the, the, the softball that you've thrown up here. We like to start slow. <laughs> I'm going to do my best. I mean, you've set this up beautifully. I'll do my best to try to talk a little bit about the image of God in Genesis 1. I need to first thank the two of you for what you do in this podcast. And I mentioned my mother because she's the one who actually called my attention to the new uh, Holy Conversations podcast that she's been listening to and that got me going on it. So I appreciate the work that you're doing. It's really good work and helpful. Some good programs so far. Um, so, and I'm also, Stephanie, I don't know you as well. I'm glad that uh, the powers that be had the wisdom to make sure there was at least one adult in charge of the Holy Conversation <laughs> so that we can, we can have confidence going forward in this whole process. You know, you see, I know Bob, I've known Bob for a while. So, okay. <laughs> Um, it's a fair, simple, it's a fair, it's a fair comment, I think. <laughs> I'm happy to help in any way I can. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, you're on task. Um, so yeah, the image of God. I mean, I've been thinking about it recently because of other conversations I've had with people. And I've, it's occurred to me that I don't think after all these years, the church even today has gotten its mind and head around the significance of being created in the image of God and what that means for all of these issues that you've raised. Uh, So I want to take just a minute to say a few words about the details of Genesis 1, um, if that's okay, and as a part of my answer. The, uh, as you know, chapter 1, verses 26 to 27 is where you have this famous quote that God made. Uh, In fact, let me, let's just put that on the table in our conversations. God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, 
Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and so forth. Then in verse 27, God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Mm-hmm. Now, it's been a topic of wild speculation for centuries because it's hardly mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. I'm going to point out one other place also in Genesis where it comes up. But theologians for all these centuries have tried to plummet you know, the depths of what this means that we're made in the image of God. And we certainly can't do justice in these few minutes here, but I'll just highlight a couple of things that I think might be helpful. The thing that a lot of people don't know, they know that passage, but a lot of people overlook the fact that in chapter five, something very similar, the same terminology is used when it talks about Adam giving birth to his son, Seth. And a lot of people don't know, a lot of Christians who read their Bibles maybe go over that genealogy. It's the introduction to a genealogy. So, you know, we say we read that with a fan. We're just going to kind of gloss over the genealogies. And that's, a, that's unfortunate because that beginning of the genealogy, it says that, that um, God created humankind. He made them in the likeness of God. Now, this is chapter five of Genesis. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them humankind, Adam, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Now, that's the same, those are the same prepositional phrases that you have in chapter one, according to his likeness and in his image. And what that means, we, we have to understand the significance of the image of God being passed down from parent to child. And I don't think it's a, I've come to believe that it's not a biological thing. It's, it's God sustaining his image in the cosmos in the way that we believe in, the, if you, you know, study uh, philosophy, you believe in the cosmological origins for the existence of God. I think more profoundly, the cosmological constant argues that what keeps the earth on its axis? Well, that's God's grace is continuing things going. And then there's a sense in which the image of God in humanity continues from parent to child just by God's grace by God's creative activity, coupled together with the activity, creation activity of, of humans. Now, what is truly remarkable in the Israelite um, revelation, in, in the sort of their, their revelatory concept here, is that they understood ethnicity. They understood in chapter 10, just a few chapters after this, they list all the ethnic groups of the world in the, the so-called table of nations. So they were aware of different ethnicities. They didn't, there's no word for race in the Old Testament, but they understood ethnic differences between themselves and the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and so forth. And then in chapter 11, you have the Tower of Babel. So because of the unification of human rebellion and sin, God comes down and spreads humanity around the world in different languages. And because of chapter 10, we know different ethnicities. But what's truly remarkable is that even knowing all of that, Israel begins with the image of God in chapter one. So that here they are, they came to a place of understanding themselves as the chosen people. There is a doctrine of election uh, in the Old Testament so that they're God's people. They're chosen to serve him as his special possession, his special treasured possession, it says in a couple of places. So they understood themselves as a chosen people. But Nonetheless, even though they weren't chosen, they understood that the image of God was stamped on all human beings around the world and in all ethnicities. 
That is, for the ancient Near East, a profound observation. We don't find anything like that in the other people groups of the ancient Near East. So I really think that's a, an observation. I'll come in a few moments to what the church has tried to say about the significance of that image. But the fact that the Israelites saw it and that they saw it in everybody, even the Babylonians, <laughs> even the Hittites, even the Egyptians were created in the image of God. That's truly a remarkable concept. You say something like that in your Cambridge commentary, right? That, that, that originally um, a king, for example, would be the image of the God. Um, right. And so sort of represent that. But it was invested in one person. But I think you used the word democratized. You know, the image of yeah. God is democratized. In all in all humanity. Which wow, is... Bob, you've read carefully. I, I'd forgotten that I said that. That's very good. Thank <laughs> you for that. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So I'll come now to one of the things that I would add to what we've just said in terms of looking at chapters one and five, is that in all the speculation that the early Christian theologians did trying to understand the image, they didn't have access to the ancient Near Eastern materials. So it wasn't until the 19th century, mid-19th, late 19th century, just a little over 100 years ago, we discovered all these ancient Near Eastern texts, the Egyptian texts and the Babylonian texts, which there aren't many, but there are a few that have references to uh, a deity, a, a rather a god, sorry, a king or a pharaoh representing the image of a deity for his people. Uh, there's even one Aramaic text that mentions the same two words we have in Genesis 1, image and likeness. And in that case, the text is referring to a statue. So there, there are two things about that. The, the image of God in the ancient world was where a king was representing the deity for that people group to his people. So the Israelites, in a sense, borrowed that concept. But as you said, Bob, it's not just for the king of Israel. It's every single human being. And you might have expected them to say, this is back to my first point, that every Israelite has the image of God. You know, everybody in the tribe of Benjamin has the image of God. Then you could debate, well, do, do the people in Issachar have the image of God? Are the Zebulonites image of God people? But they didn't do that. They, and they didn't even say it's just the Israelites. That's what's astounding about putting that text in the creation story. And in fact, it is the conclusion. It's the climax of the creation story. Uh, you have the Sabbath reported in chapter two, verses one to three, and, but, but really it's day six with the creation of the human being in the image and in the likeness of God, which the Israelites saw as um, relevant for all humans everywhere. And so the only, let me add also, the thing about the king, <laughs> the statue that I referred to, there are cases where a king would conquer a territory and, you know, they would pillage and plunder and take as much as they could and put a puppet king in charge, whatever. And then they would erect the statue, sometimes just a stone monument, sometimes a statue of themselves. And one of these has these two words, image and likeness, on it. And in a sense, these are victory stelas. They are saying, this monument is marking this territory as belonging to me as the king. I've conquered it. I own it. So there's a sense in which God in the creation of the cosmos has sort of established a beachhead with humanity and said with humanity, these, these humans represent me. They're my representative upon the planet. 
And that's why it says they're to have dominion over the fish of the air and the, uh, the, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and <laughs> all the creatures of it. So dominion is the process that we're talking about. That's what's been democratized. Instead of just a king made in the image of God, all of humanity is in God's image and has dominion as his representatives. Uh, the, the, we are his victory stealer. We, we represent God's victory on, in the cosmos. And, uh, you know, before we get to some of the other implications that you raised in your question, Bob, you didn't mention, you know, our concern for the planet and our, um, th th that's also what this is about. It's about the creation care and because we're in charge of it, uh, according to verse 27. And how well we're doing, <laughs> it depends on how well we're representing God on the planet. It's part of that vocational piece. Yes. That, that we have this that, that's it's like a royal vocation as well as kind of a an investment in all of humanity but investment with the same kind of vocation that says you, you've got to care for this you're you're my representative right right and how does embodiedness play into that as well so the fact that we have bodies we're not just it's not just that our souls represent the image of god is right. it it, no, no, I think you're right. No, you're right. We're embodied for a reason as well. There, there's actually a lot of speculation today about that. Uh, there's a relatively recent uh, speculation about God having a body and that we actually are reflecting his body. You know, all the ancient statues that were of divine statues were either of idols, were either of animals or of humans. So a lot of the, the gods were represented in human form. Uh, again, remarkably, <clears throat> instead of creating the gods in the human's image, the human here has been created in God's image. Um, so the embodiment's interesting because all the other creatures that we just looked at, that we just heard about in verses 26 and 27, are created for their environmental domain so that the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the creeping things that creep upon the earth, each of those creatures has physical characteristics suited for their environment there's a sense in which humans are the exception to that because we we're sort of made for all of them and we don't really reflect you see what i mean there's a, there's a very subtle point there that there's no there's no one domain that our bodies are suited for so it's just a very interesting uh embodiment becomes critically important although i i don't begin to claim that i really understand all of its significance yeah, and that male and female part of that embodiment, too, is such a big part of this as well. Yep. I mean, yep. even Jesus goes back to that in, in Matthew's gospel and in Mark yep. as well, where he goes back and says, this is how it was from the beginning. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's to the answer to the question about divorce, right, in, in Matthew. Yeah. Yes. That's right. He pulls on that passage. He goes right to it. And I think that's exactly right. Mm. You know, it's so interesting to me, Bill, as you as you bring up this point that the Israelites knew that uh, all of humanity was created in God's image, not just this people group. But right. then, you know, then we're confronted with this problem of sin that also affects all people, not just <laughs> one people group. And so um, to reference your introduction uh, to Genesis and the Wesley One volume commentary, uh, you say um, regarding, you know, the ecumenical Christianity, you say, quote, a focus on the ruinous consequences of human sin 
along with humanity's desperate need for salvation, end quote. But then you also emphasize, I'm going to quote again, the essential goodness of God's creation and everything in it, including human beings, end quote. So mm, yeah. I, I mean, I love this, but I'm curious for you to tell our listeners, how do Wesleyans hold these two things in tension, the goodness of humanity as created in God's image, as well as humanity's very sinful nature? Once, once again, I'm so grateful for these softball questions, these easy <laughs> questions that you two are coming up with. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's so interesting that if they, if they saw the image of God as important for all of humanity, then obviously chapter three shows that it's not just the Israelites who have sinned. That also goes back to before the call of Abraham, before the ancestors of Israel. It's, it's a, a problem endemic to all of humanity and not just any people group. So that's very interesting. I, um, I think in terms of the Wesleyan understanding of these things, and we, need, we have to come to uh, Wesley's three-part discussion of the image, which, I mean, that's a very important thing that I, I have to mention, because I think even though I've emphasized the ancient Near Eastern background and sort of it, narrowing imagery to the idea of a statue or to um, dominion of a king, I don't think the later theologians, including Wesley, were wrong to speculate about the theological profundity of this concept. So I, that's true. And I, when it comes to sin, the, the fact that chapter three is narrated right there, I think the difference is that a thoroughly Wesleyan approach to the Bible, in my opinion, takes seriously the goodness of God in chapters one and two. You know, chapter one, every day is pronounced good. And then on day six, when it's all done, it's very good. Tov Ma'od. It's, it's, it's just what God wants it to be. I tell students that the old adage of uh, God, like the painter who steps back and examines the work to say, yes, that's just what I want. That's, I think, what's involved in, in verse, uh, the sixth day of creation. It is exactly as God wants it to be. So we take that seriously, uh, just as we take seriously the end of the Bible. You know, we don't think the Bible begins at Genesis 3 or ends in Revelation 20. So it doesn't start with the fall of humanity into sin and the first entrance of sin into the world. And it doesn't end with the damnation of hell as report the lake of fire in Revelation 20. But in Revelation 21 and 22, it's a beautiful picture of a new heaven and a new earth and a restoration of all that's been lost and a tree and a garden so that everything is restored exactly. And, and then some, it's sort of blessed in a way that's beyond imagination. I think Wesleyans understand that there is an innate goodness that isn't ruined beyond renewing. I wouldn't say repair. Um, so that we have to come to prevenient grace. That's why we think grace extends to us to a point that makes it possible not to restore us to a pre-Adamic perfection, but to restore us, to, to renew within us that goodness that was instilled in all of the cosmos at creation, including the human. So I don't know if that's getting at your question, but I think the desperate need for salvation, yes, but we also think that there is a desperate goodness, a sort of an essential goodness uh, that is embedded, and it's not completely ruined. I think this is how we would define total depravity differently in Wesleyan thought. Um, my view is the, uh, 
grace comes, provenient grace comes not to uh, make it possible for us to choose to do anything we want. Free will doesn't mean that we're free to choose anything in the world that we'd like to do. Um, but it means it's possible for us because of this innate goodness, which has been marred by sin, uh, through the grace of God, then to respond to God's call. And I think that's a little different. That's a slight difference in the way we look at the gospel. Mm. Boy, that's hope. I love that. Yeah, I was, I was thinking as you were talking about Wesley's sermon on the one thing needful, Mm. that the one thing needful is, is renewal in the image of God. and. And it's interesting you said this earlier that the image of God kind of is not a thing that's talked about after Genesis 5, for example. It doesn't appear again until Colossians, mm. right? In Colossians 1, Paul talks about Jesus being the, the, image, of the image of the invisible God, the first yeah. overall creation. The image, not made in the image, but the image so almost like a pre-creation, here's the model for humanity. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think what Wesley is saying, if I'm correct, this is why I'm asking the professor in a speculative way. <laughs> yeah, but you're in the New Testament now. I have yeah, to- Yeah, okay, I'm out of your realm. I forgot that that's back there, yeah, by All the right, man. But, but I'm, gonna tap, I'm gonna tap into your United Methodist elder then part, okay? okay so, right. so, but, but and what was I talking about? So, so there is a- <laughs> Colossians 1, yeah. Yeah, so, so when-, when um, when Wesley talks about renewal in the image of God, he's saying mm-hmm. renewal in the image of Christ, not something we can do on our own, of course, but, but that Christ is the one who makes it possible for us to be renewed in that, in that image in perfect love. Right. Right. Yeah. I think Christ is the one who showed what real humanity is meant to be. When we respond to God's grace and uh, the innate goodness that's been ruined gets renewed, we start reflecting the goodness that God has put there. It's God's goodness. And that's what it means to be truly human. Jesus was the first real human (laughs) in that sense. I mean, in that sense, we'll say Adam and Eve were humans, but in terms of being fully human in the sense that um, the goodness of the creation is at play in every aspect of that person, that was Jesus. And so that's good. You know, I think that's right. The the, every wrongful act, every sinful impulse, I'm thinking about uh, Genesis 6 leading up to the flood, how every thought of the impulse of their, their always evil only, every impulse that is wrong makes us somewhat less human and uh, more like the animal kingdom. And it's, it's only God, God's grace that brings us back to being human as we were created to be. And is it very popular for people to say, well, I'm only human? <laughs> I remember hearing something when, when Tiger Woods went through all of his dis- yeah. discretion, you know, and I heard a sportscaster say, well, he's only human. And I thought, well, and he makes, and humans make mistakes. So therefore I <laughs> right. said, well, if you, if you back into somebody's car in a parking lot, that's a mistake. If you bump into nine women who aren't your wife, that's something yeah. else. Yeah. You know, there's right. something else going on <laughs> right. here. Right. And and there is a there's a responsibility that we have, but there's also a fact that I mean, total depravity would say we're really hopeless in 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 total, which I think mm-hmm. Wesley would agree with. But yes. also this idea that we can be restored, and not just at death or somewhere down the line, but rather right. 
that's a process that can begin with us now. Right. No, that's, that's right. I, I think uh, the, uh, the way I would say total depravity, I believe Wesley would completely affirm it, but he sort of overlays it with this doctrine of prevenient grace. Yeah. And, and that means that every other point, if you, you know, T is total depravity, if you take the rest of the tulip of Calvinist thought, Reformed thought, I mean, every one of those other doctrines are gone. Now they're changed. They're understood very differently because of prevenient grace. Our understanding of grace uh, changes everything. Yeah. And you, you wrote a great article for the new Firebrand mm. online magazine, which I have to give a plug for because it's a tremendous yeah, yeah, resource. Uh, and you just, this just posted a few days ago. Um, so it's up there now, firebrandmag.com. You wrote on the Wesleyan concept of original sin and, and how prevenient grace works in that. And one of the things you said in there that I thought was really helpful, and I've heard other people say this, but, but you sort of put it in context. So many people look at Wesleyans and they say, well, they, they believe in free will, but not exactly, right? Right, right, no. You would say what you said, I'll say what you said, which was, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's not about free will, but it's about a freed will. Yeah, I got to give David Watson credit for that. He edited this and I was saying, I was kind of dancing around it and saying, and he had a great way of putting that. What, what you just said, it's not free will, but freed will. Uh, so that the impulse to respond positively to the call of God is now freed up, if you will, and made possible by the grace of God. Yeah, people misunderstand free will in our doctrine as being free to do just whatever we please. You know, in, in American culture, we value individual responsibility and freedom above every other value so that we have a statue. I tell people we have a statue on the East coast to individual uh, responsibility, individual freedom. And I, I long for a statue on the West coast that would emphasize individual responsibility to match that a little bit, but we'd have to raise some money to build that statue. Anyway, uh, I think the problem is we don't, we don't teach and believe that you just can choose whatever you want, whenever you want it. But it, we believe that the grace of God has made it possible to, for us to respond positively to the call of God. And that's, that's the only way in which I think total depravity is a little differently for us, understood differently for us. So, um, you know, we, we therefore would reject the unconditional election, uh, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. None of those things, uh, we might have areas that we would agree with um, to some degree, but those things now start to be understood very differently because grace is there at the beginning and changes all of it. You know, it's interesting to me. I loved hearing you talk about uh, the renewal of our of our hearts and restoring us to um, the the image of God and taking away from our brokenness and sin. But I think it's interesting, given all of this, when you look at the world today. And um, how we want to know how can Christians and particularly Wesleyan Christians frame some of these debates and confusion uh, around human dignity and identity. And we want to know how to do this in a way that changes the conversation. So maybe you could answer that. And then how might we offer a different vision of humanity about our brokenness, about God's plan for restoring us in his image? What would you say more about that? Wow, those are great questions. Um, if I think about the, what our country is going through right now with race relations, 
uh, I really do think the church has failed to plummet, as I said earlier, the depths of this doctrine of the image of God. Um, certainly, you know, in our tradition, we have so many things to be proud of. There was just an article recently, I forget, I think that was on Firebrand too, about Wesley and uh, his letter to Wilberforce before his death. I mean, we know that Wesley had a good influence on William Wilberforce and on the abolitionist movement. Um, we know, <laughs> we have a lot of evidence that early Methodists, even after the birth of the Methodist Episcopal Church in 1784, was very much abolitionist and understood this. Uh, you know, Harry Hoosier traveled around with Francis Asbury and he, he promoted his ministry. Uh, so we have a lot of things to be proud of, <laughs> at least for a couple of decades. <laughs> And, and then in the early 19th century, you know, I, I've said this in other contexts, um, our, our church, the tr churches that preceded the United Methodist Church in that century were very heavily influenced by the culture at the time and began to adopt, simply reflect as a mirror, the, the views of that culture. And uh, slave holding began to be, you know, um, justified and rationalized. and. So uh, we compromise, and uh, by reflecting the culture, we. So let me go back to what we have to be proud of. <laughs> if we grab the roots of our doctrine and of our tradition, I think we uh, do understand the role of the image of God and how that relates to all human beings and what that means about treatment of human beings. What that means about, you know, in today's conversation, um, I think it means being sensitive to the hurt and pain of other people. So that when we hear Black Lives Matter, we don't have a knee-jerk reaction and say, well, that's a political movement or that's a, there's a problem. Sure, I mean, there may be problems with some people who believe that, but it, they're, they're bringing to the surface real systemic pain and problems that need addressing in our society. I said recently in another conversation that it's like going to the doctor and saying, you know, I have a terrible cut on my hand and it's bleeding, it's causing a lot of pain please help me. And the doctor says, well, at least your brain and your heart and your lungs, they're all doing fine. So, you know, go on your way. You're, you'll be fine. We'll say, no, you don't understand the pain I'm going through right now. This is painful. You have to help me. And so I think it's a matter of, this is probably a time for us to listen, as everybody has said, to listen profoundly to those who are highlighting pain in our society. Um, but the roots of that go back to this question of human dignity and you know fairness uh, of treatment for humans so anyway that, that's there's an awful lot there too then the uh the question i think you also hinted at with that human uh what it means to be human generally or human anthropology uh christian anthropology i think our debates in our denomination on this question really have been misplaced on essentialism so that we bought into the cultural descriptions of what it, you know, who am I? You know, I'm first of all, I'm a Christian and then I'm a husband and then I'm a male. <laughs> maybe that, maybe those last two would be reversed, but it's not essentialism of identity so much as behavior. So I think a, a thorough grounding of Christian anthropology in these very texts that we're talking about would help us change the nature of that conversation too. Um, but so far, I have not had many opportunities in all the work I've done in our church to have actual theological discussion. We, we, we avoid that. It's important to do that. 
I, I'm thinking about some Nancy Piercy's work and some others about the body and and personhood and how all that comes together. Her work on that. I know Tim Tennant has a book coming out pretty soon yeah. about yeah. about the body and how that all connects to this. So that'll be another another very interesting conversation. And, and as you were talking, we've mentioned a couple of times statues, which is another thing that's a big issue in our culture <laughs> at the moment. Yes, right it now. is. And and it and it as you were talking, it it I had this thought. So I'm going to play this out to see whether it works or not. Is this not illustrative of the third commandment? Uh, I think it's, well, it's, maybe it's the second commandment. Don't, don't make you count any, the commandments. Yeah, so, yeah right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't have them in front of me, but, and, and unbelievably, I haven't memorized them in order, but, but don't, don't make any graven <clears throat> image. Right. Because it'll never be the image. Right. Uh, yeah. Wesley says in his sermon on the image of God that we were created to stand, but liable to fall. Mm. And I think that's true of any image that we put out there. So when we yeah. look at all these statues and all the issues that go around with that, it's like, tear them down. No, keep them up. Well, maybe we shouldn't have built them in the first place. <laughs> in the first place. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's except for the uh, opportunity it gives an artist to show off their skill, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a, not a good idea. And, you know, as somebody wrote an article the other day, that history is littered with broken down, broken down statues. I mean, they're, they're mm -hmm. monuments have fallen all through time in different periods of history. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a tragic thing, but also we wonder what we expected. <laughs> yeah, we kind of reap what we've sown. Didn't yep. pay attention to that very well. Just something that occurred to me. I don't know. It, it's it's a fascinating thing. And I, you know, as a historian, someone who's sort of raised in that, I mean, I was a guide at Gettysburg, um, you know, all of that. So th those monuments mean something. They mean different things to different people. And um, it's amazing how much we invest in that without thinking about what's behind it and our our total humanity and our our createdness to stand yes. and fall that no one, no one who we build a statue of is ever going to be all that. Right. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, yeah. I worry about that, however, because we have three statues on the campus, the Wilmore campus of Asbury Seminary. <laughs> John yeah, Wesley, Charles Wesley, Francis Asbury, I call them Jack, Chuck, and Frank, and just hope that they survive the ravages of time. <laughs> well, even those, I mean, I remember all the debates about Francis Asbury, what direction he right. was facing, and right, people right, and right. people dress up John Wesley during the holidays right. and stuff like that. So I, I don't see the seminary community treating them with the same <laughs> awe and reverence as many others uh, might. I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> so far, nobody has strapped ropes to John's neck and tried to pull him over. We hope that yeah. doesn't happen. Probably wouldn't take very much, given how small his statue <laughs> is. But. <laughs> Well, Bill, we want to thank you for this time. And certainly there's so much more we can talk about. And, and we'll probably have you back again to, to talk more about this as we, as we move forward. And we're just so appreciative of you taking the time. I know sure. it's a busy summer as you're getting ready for, for fall semester and all that coming up. And yeah. uh, we're just really grateful for you spending the time you're with us. You're welcome. And, thank uh, you for hosting this. This is a great uh, thing you're doing. So I appreciate your work.
Well, thank you so much, Bill. We're just really, really excited to have you here with us. It's an honor to be with you and get to know you better. And friends, I just want to remind you that it's so important for us to hear from you. So we would love to hear your comments, your questions, especially as we put together this mailbag episode that we're hoping to do soon. So if you have any comments or questions you would like to send in, then please send those to podcast at Wesleyan Covenant. Dot org. And we just love to be able to base some of our future episodes on the things that you help to share with us and make sure that you like us, make sure that you leave a, a comment or a review. We'd love to have that shared as well. And Bob, it's always good to be in studio with you halfway across the country and friends, we'll look forward to seeing you next time.